Greetings, everybody, from the man in the yellow hat. Uh, we had a great picnic yesterday. It was gorgeous. Uh, official count I got was uh, including staffing from uh, the church and help from the nursery school folks and all the families that came was 514. So <clears throat> we were very thankful. That represented about half of our students this year. We've got in the 180s for students, and it was, uh, I think it was 99 children that came with uh, various members of the family. And it was just a, a great time, and uh, thanks so much to you. I was really proud of our congregation for all the involvement. Uh, very happy for the people that showed up early to do setup. Really, really happy for the people that stayed late to clean up. And uh, uh, we had, I think, everything put away, and uh, we're finished by about 8 o'clock in the evening. So just a wonderful day, praying that... Uh, some of those families that don't know the Lord would, uh, through these kinds of contacts, uh, find their way to Jesus. So that's why we do it. And uh, thank you for all that you did, uh, including uh, praying for that event. The Lord, I think, really answered our prayers. So I was challenged yesterday by none other than the saintly Art York, who said that he would give me $10 if I would preach in this hat. So I've given this careful thought. And uh, I am a little concerned that it could be distracting. Uh, and I'm also concerned that Art might get in trouble with Gladdy. Uh, although he did show me he has $10 here uh, this, today. So, so, Art, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save your marriage, and uh, I'm going to take the hat off, but I also don't want to be known as the betting pastor in town. So uh, we'll, we'll take it off, and we'll, uh, we'll get to our sermon for today. All right. So, uh, we've spent uh, a number of weeks talking about uh, power, and uh, we may get back to that, but we've distinguished power over and power under, right? And uh, <clears throat> the temptation for us is always power over, because we know how to do that better. It, uh, it strengthens our... Uh, false notion that we really have control over situations, and, uh, and we get into trouble when we have access to power over most of the time. Power under is different. It's much harder. Power under is the power of suffering love, right? It's the power of Jesus. And for us, power under is linked, as, as we'll see in the life of Jesus as well, <clears throat> power under is always related to prayer. It's the only way you can do it. And so it seemed reasonable since increased prayerfulness is one of the things we say we want to stress at uh, Grace Bible Church, 
And as we've been thinking about power, it seems reasonable for us to move into some uh, examination of prayer. And I want to start here in Luke 11, where the disciples actually ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. So uh, follow along. We're not going to look at uh, the whole prayer, but uh, look at the way Luke frames it out for us. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In Matthew's parallel account, that that final statement of Jesus uh, reads, uh, if you then, though you were evil, uh, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things? And you see a distinctive emphasis in Luke, which carries through the book of Acts, that when God gives good gifts, the preeminent gift that he gives is the Spirit. Well, let's, uh, let's begin then, and I thought it might be helpful, uh, it was to me, to look at some of the ways people think about prayer or define Christian prayer. So I've got a couple of definitions And I'm planning this week to send out these definitions to all of you so that, you know, you've got them. You don't have to try and copy them down here unless you want to. So let's ask this question. What is prayer and what have Christians thought about prayer? So let's go back a a few hundred years to uh, the the Catholic nun and uh, Christian mystic Teresa of Avila, who says, mental prayer is nothing else than a close sharing between friends. It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. So there, the emphasis on divine human friendship as the heart of prayer. That's an emphasis you'll find in many places. A contemporary Catholic theologian, James Martin, says prayer is conscious conversation with God. Now, that's interesting to think about, right? Conversation. Not just just talking at God. That's not quite a conversation. But raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? I mean, how do you have a conversation when the person on the other side doesn't speak audibly? You know, almost 100% of the time. So how does that work? Presbyterian pastor and uh, seminary, now seminary prof, he's retired from the church, Uh, says, 
Tim Keller says, prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Well, he's weaving a number of things together there, but that emphasis on deep change is pretty important, right? I mean, we spent the best part of a year talking about transformation. <clears throat> Another, you know, link in our vision for the church. But we've got to see, Keller's right here, that deep change, deep transformation in our lives is coordinated with prayer. So we don't just say to ourselves, okay, I'm going to become a better person Uh, I'm going to become more Christ-like or whatever without serious prayerfulness. They go hand in hand. Then the, uh, the evangelical Quaker, Richard Foster, who has given us a lot of books on the spiritual life, uh, says, prayer is nothing more than an ongoing and growing love relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, we ought to get Paul in there, right? In Colossians, here's what Paul says. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Working hard, wrestling in prayer. Another way to talk about it, huh? So, So prayer is work. We probably would agree with that pretty much, right? And, and I would say the implication here in what Paul says is that it is working with God, right? The wrestling in prayer is struggle, as we noted last week in that Ephesians 6 passage. The fight is with powers and authorities in the heavenly realm. So we, we struggle together with God, working hard in prayer. So I've thought about all those, and uh, I try to come up with a definition that I think captures some of this. DGD is me, by the way, the man in the yellow hat. So I think I'd say something like this. Prayer is conversation with God. So that mysterious element of how do you talk with someone who doesn't speak audibly. Conversation with God through which we experience his transforming friendship. So as Keller says, there's deep change that takes place in us through prayer and only through prayer. We experience his transforming friendship and 
partner with him in the work of his kingdom. So we've talked about that divine human partnership many times, right? So that captures at least some of the major themes of prayer. As I said, we'll send this out to you this week, and you might want to just go through those definitions and think about them yourself. How do you understand what these people are saying? All right, so let's go to uh, Luke 11 then for a few minutes and uh, think about these disciples who see Jesus praying and then they say, Lord, will you teach us to pray? Why do they ask that? Why don't they just do it? Well, I think part of it is that they're like me, maybe like you. There is a felt lack in their lives when they think about prayer, when they try to pray. They feel inadequate, huh? If if they grade themselves, if you grade yourself, outstanding? No, not outstanding. Good? Uh, Not usually. Requires improvement? Oh, yeah. Inadequate? Yep. Inadequate prayer life. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you would you know, rate yourself there. I would. I'd rate myself there. Why is that? What's this, this lack that we sense? Where does it come from? Well, it was very easy for me to grab a number of quick items here, and uh, <clears throat> we could probably add to it if we took a little time. Uh, today we start up the sermon follow-up class again if some of you want to join us, you can add to the list. Anything you think of, we'll, we'll put on the list. But certainly our own inherent sinfulness. Right? You come to prayer and you feel, well, you feel a little bit like Isaiah did in chapter 6, right? When he sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, his train of his clothes filling the sanctuary, and the angels crying out to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and what is Isaiah's response? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He senses, in contrast to God, uh, how sinful he is. Well, I think all of us sense that when we come into the presence of God. We feel inadequate. We feel like We're not sure we belong there. And then, a lot of the time, I feel a lack of motivation. Don't you? I mean, we're we're in this culture that values busyness and checking off the to-do list. Isn't that the world you live in? Busy, busy, busy. And you want me to pray? 
Like doing nothing? And knowing that whatever time I spend in prayer is just going to box up and make the schedule tighter of the other stuff I have to do. And then, you know, then I'm tired. So I, I sit down to try and get quiet in God's presence, and I find that's a great way to fall asleep quickly. It's hard to stay awake. Lack of motivation. How about lack of focus? Can you get 20 seconds into a prayer without being somewhere else in your head? Paying the bill? Getting the car inspected? Making sure the kids get up on time and get to school with half the stuff they're supposed to get there with? Lack of focus in prayer, that, that's just so frustrating. Start to pray and find out that I'm out on my boat fishing. How about lack of results? Boy, I... Some people talk about seeing God doing all kinds of stuff in their life, but the reality is, you know, I, I pray for some things for years. Hasn't happened. And then some of the other stuff that does happen that you do ask for, then there's the little voice in the back of your head that says, yeah, but if, if you hadn't prayed for it, wouldn't it have happened anyway? And, and then, if, then if you're kind of a Calvinist that believes that God ordains things, then you can say to yourself, well, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do. I mean, he knows, he knows my needs and everything else, and so, you know, what's, what's the point of praying? How many other things you want to add to that list? Well... Come to class, we can talk about some of those things. So I think part of what drives the disciples is what drives me to this question of, Lord, will you teach, will you teach me how to pray? It's this sense of, I don't know how. I'm, I'm not good at this. But the other thing that, that I think Luke especially, of all the four Gospels, makes quite clear, is that what is drawing out this request from the disciples is the example of Jesus himself. Paul, uh, uh, Luke, is, uh, is very concerned in a way that is unique to his gospel account. He is concerned to show us that the whole of Jesus' life, particularly the three years of public ministry from his baptism right through to the cross, that that 
whole period is dominated by the prayerfulness of Jesus, who does nothing on his own, but does everything in dependence upon his Father. So at the baptism scene, right at the beginning, Jesus goes out to be baptized by uh, his cousin John in the Jordan River. And remember that, the heavens are opened, and God says, this is my beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Uh, Of the four Gospels, they all mention the baptism. Only Luke adds, as he was praying. That's when the Holy Spirit descends. That's when heaven is open. And remember, Luke wants to help us make this connection between prayer and the Holy Spirit. He does the same thing when he comes to the book of Acts. Because he wants us to see that the church then follows in the path of Jesus. Prayer to the Father brings the gift of the Spirit. And then uh, Val actually mentioned this text uh, earlier. Paul t- uh, Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He often did that because he was often pressed by the crowds. He was often very, very busy. Like I feel lots of times. Very, very busy. And I say to myself, I don't have time to pray. Jesus was very, very busy. And he often withdrew to pray. And then in chapter 6, Jesus spent the night praying to God. About what? Well, the next thing Luke tells us is the following morning after a night of prayer, he selects 12 men out of his larger group of followers, 12 men to be his appointed apostles, to represent him as they go about preaching and teaching and healing. Now see, you wouldn't do that, would you? I wouldn't do that. I mean, I I wouldn't be able to stay awake all night. Because I don't think prayer is that important. Hmm? Jesus does. I mean, that's that's so unmodern. If we want to select disciples, what would we do? Well, we'd get some interview questions and put a committee together and uh, probably give them some personality tests. You know, do these guys have leadership qualities after all? <clears throat> and, you know, and then we might pray for a minute or so, just say, Lord, uh, help us to choose the right people. Bless this work that we've done, you know gathering resumes and so forth. Jesus spends the night praying. 
Yeah, I'm thinking about this even with regard to hiring next pastor. Maybe along with having a committee working on this, they're meeting today, by the way, but maybe along with that, we, sh- we should have some, some evenings of congregational prayer here where we bring together the church and say, God, we, we're seeking your will. Will you direct us? And see, this is interesting insights into Jesus himself. See, if you're a Christian and you know basic Christian teaching, we say Jesus is fully God and he's fully human. And we're not quite sure what that means, but a lot of times, even though we say we're not sure what that means, what we do think it probably means is that he already knows all this stuff, so what was the point of his praying in particular? which suggests that we probably really don't understand how his humanity and his deity go together. I think that's true. But Jesus felt that need. And then there is that great event of the transfiguration when he goes up into a mountain and takes three disciples with him, and there his his person is transfigured. There's a radiance about him, and Moses and Elijah appear and speak with him, and there's a voice that comes from heaven. It's almost like the baptism again, right? But once again, it's, it's just Luke. Luke alone tells us that he went up into the mountain to pray. And this great event happens as he prays. Well, what about the end? As he is facing the cross with that great agony of soul, he prays in the garden. You know, and the striking thing here is, too, he he has his disciples with him and he asks them to pray. And what do they do? They fall asleep, right? And Luke, Luke is the only one I think that tells us why they fell asleep. They fell asleep because their hearts were sorrowful. Now Jesus' heart was obviously very, very sorrowful to the point of death, but he prayed. And they didn't. And see, there's another reason we don't pray sometimes. It's because we're sorrowful. We're sad. We're depressed. And and sometimes even talking to God about our sadness, which is what we need to do, that's exactly what we don't do. All right. So they see this example of Jesus, and they, they seek from him. Lord, teach us to pray. But where do you begin when you pray? Well, you begin with the relationship that Jesus has with his Father. 
In chapter 10, right before this request comes, here's what Jesus says. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. What is it that Jesus wills to do? He wills to reveal the Father to us. One of the themes that you see in all the Gospels is kingdom, right? The other one is the fatherhood of God. Jesus knows the Father, and He comes to share with us the knowledge that God is a Father to all those who will come through the Son. That's John's Gospel, right? No man comes to the Father except through me. So, as he teaches his disciples to pray, the first word is Father. And it follows the pattern of Jesus' life. Look at the prayers of Jesus in all four Gospels. And every recorded prayer we have begins with Father, except one. And it proves the rule. You know what it is? The prayer from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that's a quotation from Psalm 22. So in that sense, it proves, it proves the rule. When Jesus simply speaks, not quoting the Old Testament, he addresses God as Father. And so he says to the disciples, I want you to use that same terminology, the same terminology that I use. Now you speak to God that way also. Great book by David Crump, Knocking on Heaven's Door. <clears throat> Crump says, Jesus was the one and only Son of the Father. Not only did Jesus claim to know God in a way that no one else ever could, but He offered Himself as the only avenue for others to experience God's fatherhood themselves. Consequently, when Jesus invites the disciples to pray, Our Father, He is able to transform an exclusive relationship into an open invitation. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son will to re wills to reveal Him. There's the invitation. Come to Jesus and through Jesus come to know the Father so that you can address Him in prayer the way Jesus did. That's where we begin. <clears throat> and as we address God as Father, there's the question, what attitude do we have in our minds? Especially sinners, right? Who find our sins as limiting and, <clears throat> and creating avoidance in us. How are we to think of the Father? And that's where we jump down to uh, verses 12 and 13 where Jesus says, here's the way you need to think about God. 
You need to think about him as good. That's his character. Our Father in heaven, who is good. So Jesus says, look, which of you parents, if your child asks you for fish, will give him a snake? Or which of you parents, if your child asked for fried eggs, sunny side up, will uh, give him a scorpion? Now, these are rhetorical questions, right? A rhetorical question expects a certain kind of answer, and the expected answer here is that the disciples would say, Well, no one would do that. No father would do something like that. Of course, we know that in an evil world, there are fathers, there are mothers who can be abusive to their children. We know that. But once again, that's the exception that proves the rule. The rule is, the norm is that no one wants to hurt their children. When their children ask for something good, they wouldn't think of giving something knowingly that is evil. Jesus said, all right, now, when you start to pray, think about this. That if that is true for you as a parent, how much more, how much more Is it true for your Father in heaven? How much more is it true that when you ask from Him, He will give you good things? Indeed, He will give you the best that He can give, which is the Spirit. He will do that because He has that character about Him. He is filled with goodness. So let's ask ourselves two questions and take this with us today. Number one, do you want to learn to pray? I've been thinking about that this week. For me, do I, do I want to learn to pray? Is that one of the goals of my life? <clears throat> and with that then, do you believe that God has only good intentions toward you? Or do you think God might be out to get you? To sabotage you? to give you something that might really not be good for you? These are fundamental questions of faith, friends. I need to answer these questions honestly. And you know, if I'm honest, I answer these questions different ways at different times. Sometimes I want to learn to pray, other times I'm too busy or whatever. 
And sometimes I believe that God has only good intentions toward me, but other times I, I have questions. Well, that's okay. Honest questions are okay with our God. So let's, let's pray, and uh, our music team will come up and uh, lead us in a closing song. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. In the name of the one who who loved to pray. Who desired to know your will and to do your will. Who trusted you implicitly. Who in everything he did depended upon you for strength and wisdom to do it well. God, we want to, we do want to learn to pray. We want to pray more the way he did. We want to learn to trust you with all of our being. Just as he trusted you when he faced the cross. Lord, as we face those various crosses in our lives that he promised us we would face, we we want to face them with this deep Christ-like confidence that you are working only for our good and the good of the world. So, Lord, as we enter into this series of reflections on prayer, would you come and work in our lives, give us encouragement to pray, give us focus, give us desire, all those things that we might learn to pray more like the master prayer in whose name we offer this prayer. Amen.